Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's bow our heads for a moment to pray. Almighty Father, we are grateful to you this morning and for this privilege and opportunity to meet and discuss on this very vital subject, which is very dear to your heart. I ask, O oh Lord, that you will help us in our discussion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My name is um, Reverend Yunusa Madu. The first and second name are very difficult to pronounce. <laughs> so, uh, I come from Nigeria. I live in Nigeria, in the northern part of Nigeria. I head the work of CSW in Nigeria and also the General Secretary of the Evangelical Church, William Old Equa. We have about uh, between 8 to 10 million members across the world. And I live in Jos, the capital of Plateau State, for those of you who are conversant with Nigeria. I come this morning from two worldviews. First, I was a Muslim, and I got converted uh, into Christianity at a very early age, and then I'm a pastor. It's my pleasure to be here this morning and to lead this seminar on behalf of uh, the Christian Solidarity Worldwide. The topic we're talking about this morning is uh, transforming conflict through reconciliation. Transforming conflict through reconciliation. Now, the following narrative is that of a mother's ordeal in one of the religious conflicts that happened in Bochi State, northern part of Nigeria. Uh, way back 1998, and I would like to read what she said. And this is how she described our deal. When it was daylight, we came out of our hiding place to see the death and the injured, and our house suddenly, the gunshots resumed. We ran into the bush and remained there for days. We were roasting yams and granites that we got from the farm in the bush. One day they pursued us into the bush, caught up with us and separated me from my husband and children, and they sliced my husband's truth as we watched him die. When I saw this, I had one of them, I held one of them and told him I had nobody to take care of me and my children. The other came and removed me from my hold, and they left us. Uh, they left us there wailing and crying. I took the children, and we continued further into the bush with some other women and children. Some pregnant women gave birth in the bush. There was no water, and the babies died. One woman in particular gave birth to twins in the bush, and they all died. Later, the woman herself died, and there was nobody to bury all the dead bodies. 
We were in the bush for six days, working on our barefoot. Presently, myself and my four children are staying at home doing nothing. No money to trade. Hence, the children cannot go back to school. And we can hardly feed. Someone gave us a farm, a farmland, where we now grow and cultivate food to eat. Now, I chose this narrative to let us see the kind of situation that we face, especially in northern Nigeria. And this kind of narrative can be replicated in many parts of northern Nigeria where conflict has occurred. So the question really is, can we truly reconcile in a situation like this? Can there be reconciliation? I put in another way, is reconciliation worth it in such circumstances? What option do we have as Christians when you live in a situation like the one I've just described? Especially when those who have wronged you in a manner like this, you see them walk the street. No one has arrested them. They have not been prosecuted. And they tell you to your face that if it happens again and they have the opportunity, they will do it again. And the Bible asks us to love our enemies as ourselves. Is reconciliation possible? Well, in parts of northern Nigeria, religious sectarianism has divided society, causing spatial segregation and giving rise to deep distrust and occasion violence. If you go to many parts of northern Nigeria today, it's very common to see people live in segregated communities. Find a Christian community, and then you move a few meters away, you find a Muslim community. And there is uh, mutual distrust among people of different faiths. Reconciliation involves formulating a way, or a way to coexist by developing the degree of cooperation necessary to enable formerly divided communities to share their society in a manner that ensures they are better off together than living separately. Reconciliation is not an easy resolve, especially in a kind of situation that I've described. Nevertheless, it is the ministry that Christ has entrusted to his followers. Therefore, using scriptures and concrete uh, case study from northern Nigeria, this seminar will illustrate how reconciliation can bring about conflict transformation, even in a seemingly intractable situation. Now, the word reconciliation is derived from the Latin expression conciliatus, which means literally coming together. And it implies a process of restoring the shattered relationship between two actors. A writer, David 
Bloomfield in his contribution to an article, Reconciliation After Violence, noted that reconciliation is a complex term and there is little agreement on its definition. This he explained is mainly because reconciliation is both a goal and a process, a means to achieve that goal. And most often than not, the controversy over the meaning of the term reconciliation arises from confusing these two ideas. So he continued by saying reconciliation is an overarching process which include searching for truth, justice, forgiveness, and healing. At its simplest, therefore, reconciliation means finding a way to live alongside former enemies to develop the degree of cooperation necessary to share our society with them so that we can have better, we can live better lives together than we have lived separately before now. Now, I think I have the elongated paper here. If you just excuse me for a moment, I would uh, sort out for shorter version. It happens, isn't it? So, looking at conflict in scriptures, the story of the Torah of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, gives an insightful account of the beginning of what we would describe as conflict in the Bible. This seems to be the last judgment that befell humanity. In the sequence that began with the fall in Genesis chapter 3 uh, and the Sons of God episode in Genesis chapter 6 verse 1 to 4. So following the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 where cultural and racial diversity are seen as part of a good creation, Babel then represents a continuation of the fall, a first attempt at human imperialism and the building of a civilization on the basis of unique and exclusive language. That is the culmination of the story of primordial rebellion against God. Now, the common language here in the crisis at the Torah of Babel represents an attempt to impose a universal viewpoint and way of speech upon humanity. Because scripture said they had one language. And for me, this is where conflict always begins. The imposition of one's viewpoint 
upon the other, leading to the frustration of the other person's goal or desire. Another writer describes it as a totalitarian ideology enforced through political, moral, and religious centralization. It says, a city with one way of thinking, one way of talking, reaching heavenward under the authority of a single power. That's a summary of what happened at the Tower of Babel. It is interesting that the narrative that follows after chapter 11, after the, the conflict in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, of Genesis, is the Abrahamic salvation narrative recorded in Genesis chapter 12. The call of Abraham in this chapter becomes the emerging response to a world that is squeezed into the mold of the Torah of Babel. It could clearly be noted that Abrahamic narrative of salvation originated as a response to a world that is not in peace. A world in which cultural, national, linguistic barriers are a source of separation and non-communication between families, peoples, and nations. So the whole project of salvation of mankind is therefore anchored in the message of peace and reconciliation between humanity and God and within humanity itself. So it is God reconciling us to himself so that we also can be reconciled to ourselves. Jesus came to make right the political and social order that was confused and scattered at Babel. The prophet Isaiah puts it even more succinctly when he announced even before the Messiah was born and the government shall be upon his shoulder and he shall be called Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter six, chapter 9, verse 6 to 7. God has been in the business of peace building right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3 and more visibly in the narrative of the Torah of Babel. So God's church should be equally concerned. If the God whom we worship is interested in reconciliation, it leaves us with no choice but to also be concerned about peace and reconciliation. <clears throat> if we must resemble him to the extent of being called children of God by reason that we are peacemakers as we find in Matthew chapter 5 verse 9. So the call of the church is to be salt and light and it is a very clear call to be made known, to make known the gospel of Christ to the people who are in darkness, leading to brightening their dark path and to sweeten their spiritual test board. In doing this, our challenge is significant and, and is a comprehensive one. Our world certainly is on fire and seeks for peace wherever it can find it. What is needed is a spiritual vision for our world, a kingdom vision and vocation that responds to our world's narrative 
of violence and exclusion. The biblical witness calls this change and vision shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. Peacemaking, which is a cardinal responsibility of the church, is a mode of discipleship required for societal transformation in an age of violence and conflict. So, shalom means much more than the absence of conflict. As one writer, Nicholas, points out, he says, the content of shalom is the presence of right and harmonious relationship imbued with delight and flourishing before the Lord. This implies that shalom is present not only when our society knows no violence, but when the people in our society work in such a way, they live in harmony and flourish. So, he continues, shalom is not only reconceptualized, I mean shalom, shalom not only reconceptualizes the political and social order of our society, but also reverses the everyday and localized effect of a global market economy and a history of discrimination, injustice, inequality, and exclusion. Indeed, the gospel of peace is a radical alternative for our violent world. Therefore, from our covenant relationship with God to our social institutions, shalom is God pulling back together our broken world. Gonick observes that to take another image from Isaiah, shalom is not just the wolf and the lamb coexisting, but the wolf and the lamb finding their rest in one another. Shalom is more than physical safety for the child playing near the cobra. It is the child and the cobra successfully playing together. So peace in Christianity is predicated upon the concept of the kingdom of God and the covenant of peace. Whereas the covenant of peace is not mere absence of conflict, it is the condition of well-being. Peace and harmony, it is the condition of well-being, peace and harmony, wherever God reigns. It characterizes the state of appropriate relationship under God's kingship. This could be seen in the message of peace in Christianity, which is based upon the call to love one's own neighbor as oneself and the extraordinary call to love one's own enemy. What you want to do with your enemies is not to love, humanly speaking, right? When they wrong you, you find a weightier way to wrong them also. But scripture says we should love them. This call to love even the enemy is perhaps 
the most difficult demand of a Christian peacemaker. Because as I look back now, I remember that in one of the crises, my library was burnt in the church, and I just escaped death by 45 minutes. I also remember that the church, the last church I pastored before I got into the position of the general secretary of our denomination, uh, the only car I could afford then was burnt to ashes in the church. In fact, I had to pay money to remove the rubbles from the church. That's how bad it was. And I can imagine those who did it. I can guess. But scripture says, my option is to love them. Hmm. The church can and should make a contribution to building a culture of peace. It can sharpen and make more visible a Christian commitment to peace and reconciliation as a mark of what it, is, it means to be church today. So what is this issue of reconciliation or, or perhaps the, the ministry of reconciliation? The subject of peace building, or to use a more biblical term, reconciliation, is key to the Christian faith and practice. This is because at the heart of the Christian gospel and God's redemptive work is reconciliation. It is a key term, among others, that speaks of God's saving work in the world we live in. Reconciliation, as we see, as we see it in scriptures, is about God making peace with man and teaching man in turn to make peace with fellow man. It is a work of God's grace whereby and strange relationships are mended. Every Christian shares in this ministry of reconciliation. It's not just those in the group of clergies, but every Christian, any, everyone that has been called by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and wherever you are found, should share in this ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because we, <coughs> as Christians, have been reconciled to God through Christ. Now, you cannot give what you don't have. So when God calls us to, to be reconcilers in the world we live in as salt and light, it's because we have experienced firsthand reconciliation with God himself. Paul tells us that we have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. So it's a trust. It's a trust. Meaning, God is appealing to a broken and a divided world through us. Even though God is the initiator of reconciliation, it is heartwarming to know that God's work is not without human cooperation. Humans are bearers of the message of reconciliation with God and co-laborers with God in reconciling humans with one another. Thus, the ministry of reconciliation is the heart of the mission of the church. If we miss that, we miss everything else. A neglect of this responsibility, therefore, amounts to disobedience of the master's command. So, the church 
is an ambassador of reconciliation. Paul points out that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, having reconciled us to himself and God through his death and resurrection. <coughs> this means that the church is now Christ reconciled and reconciling community. I want you to take note of that. That we are now Christ reconciled and reconciling community. The church is now a signpost of God's kind of kingdom. We are a show glass of what God intends the world to be like. A counterculture, an alternative society, and a distinctive people all together in a world that is badly in need of the uh, preservative work of the salt and the illuminating work of light. The church, by virtue of its new relationship with Christ, has now become a Jesus-shaped community and a people in solidarity with the poor, oppressed, and marginalized. The church, as a community of God's people, must be able to form a formidable resistance against the world's domination system. Now, this now brings me to the practical uh, experience of our work in Nigeria, Christian solidarity worldwide, in times of reconciliation. In 2012, I was posted to a church where the community is 99% Muslims. It wasn't so when the church was built in that community, but because of crisis over the years, um, the Christians had to move out of that community. But the church over the years believed that closing shops in that community will bring more darkness to the community. So, you know, leadership of that church over the years have believed that they they exist in that community to be the light of the community. So when I was posted to this church in 2012, at that time the church had been burned down 10 different times. Yeah? In fact, in one occasion, seven children who ran to the church during a violent crisis, I mean, violent conflict, got slaughtered in one of the offices in the church. And so we, people of that church, had experienced crisis. They will rebuild the church, they will burn it down, they will rebuild the church, they will burn it down. It got to a time that there were no, no the, the personage the, where the pastors live was no longer in the church because it was no longer safe to, uh, to have it in the church. So whenever there is crisis, no matter how small, the crisis is in the town, in the city of Kaduna State, that church must be touched. And so, going to the church, I prayed to God, Lord, I want my tenure and beyond to end the destruction of this church. I didn't know what to do, but God gave us wisdom. So I went to the sheikhs, the Muslim malams, the, their, their 
you know, top clerics in that community and then the traditional ruler. And we said, we can work together. Uh, it was during the Ramadan fast. And I said to them, we see there are a lot of poor people amongst you, those who cannot afford food to break their fast. The church would like to provide food to those class of people. And he looked at me again. I think that that meeting we were together with uh, Dr. Kataza, uh, CSW, she worshipped in our church that Sunday. So we went together to, to his palace. And it was like, are you serious? Are you sure? <coughs> and so we got talking and started planning. So when I announced to the church that this is what we're going to do, of course, the church was divided. It was divided because people felt, no, you don't do that. You take God's money. God's money. I said we're going to transport the money to God sometimes. Yeah, you take <coughs> God's money and feed people who burn our churches and destroy our properties. You can't do that. Well, I told them I believe this, this is the right thing to do because we are a church in this community that the community do not feel our impact. And anytime a church exists in a community and you are not affecting that community positively, close the church. Did you hear that? This morning I'm in trouble because I have a lot of people with colors. <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's, that's my belief. That the church exists in a community to first of all benefit that community. To be light and salt. Now, I asked my colleagues, pastors. If you close your church today in the community uh, that is hosting you, will they miss you? If they will not, then think again. So, with that kind of principle, you know, and belief, I thought that this is the best thing to do. Especially, most of us do not live in that community. We come to church well-dressed in our suits and nice dresses with big cars, and we drive into the church, and we drive off. And here are poor people who are looking at us. Some of them even think we are part of those who steal Nigerian money. So, we decided we were going to do that. So Ramadan came, we got money from the church post, we bought raw food, and we divided to the sixth mosque in that community. When we did that, two months later, there was a bomb blast um, in parts of the state. I think about three bomb blasts one Sunday. So we're in church and we, 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 we couldn't even end the service because we're afraid, you know, killings have already started in some parts of the state and if news filters into that community, we'll all be gone. So we hurriedly closed our church service and we went back home. Thankfully not enough, none of us was caught. Of course, some people got their car bashed and so on, but then no life was lost. 
So for three days, this crisis <coughs> raged, and we couldn't come to where the church was. And people called me severally and said, well, we see smoke coming from around the church. Uh, we sympathize with you. You've just finished this church beautifully done. You've spent so much money re-roofing the church. The church is, uh, has been destroyed again. I said, well, I cannot confirm that story because I can't even go to the church. There was a coffee. So after three days, when it was safe for me to come to the church, I came to the church and not a scratch, not a scratch on the wall of the church. And when I, I went to the chief, you know, the local, the traditional ruler, and I said to him, for the first time our church was not gone. And he said, yes. Some of those boys you gave food to slept in the church for the past three days. Muslims. And all those who came to destroy your church were dispelled by these young people. Because they said, these people love us. They gave us food. We were not allowed their church to be destroyed. Up on this, until this time I'm talking to you, that church has not been touched again. So it has become an annual event, even after I left the church. When I got uh, elected as the general secretary of our denomination, I had to move from Kaduna State to another state, uh, Plateau State in Jos, where I live now. It was during Ramadan fast. The number of Muslims that followed for my inauguration were so many that people were wondering what kind of relationship. During Ramadan fast, you don't want to travel far, but they traveled three hours to be in church so that they can witness the, in my inauguration. And going forward, we instituted a program called Friends Day. That's apart from the Ramadan food uh, distribution, which is ongoing. We have a program called Friends Day, where we invite our unchurched friends to come to church. In one of those services, there were about 100 Muslims who came to church from the beginning of church to the end. They gave offering. They had the message. The message was deliberately tailored to us unsafe people because that's, that's a Sunday where we invite our church friends. And only God knows what that message or those messages have done in their hearts and will do in the future. Of course, in that community, you cannot go out publicly and share tracts and share your faith door to door like you, know, you can do in some other communities. But at least we can get them invited to the church and they feel comfortable with us. And after church, we have lunch with them. For me, <clears throat> this is reconciling with a community that has shown us so much hatred, that have destroyed our properties over the years, but now we have, we, we, we have become friends. Anything that happens 
in the community, even though we don't live in the community, the traditional, the local traditional ruler will consult with us. What do you think? Because they believe that we have something to offer. Before I left the church, we started thinking of programs for the young people who have nothing to do so that we can show them love. And each time we give them anything, we say to them, Christ has sent us to you. The love of Christ that is in our heart compels us to do what we are doing to you. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much for that very inspirational introduction. Much appreciated. Um, I'm Caroline Cox, independent of Crossbench member of the House of Lords, and I just want to follow on from your very powerful introduction from my own experience, because I've had the privilege of being in North and Central Belt, Nigeria, many, many times. Um, I founded my own small charity, Heart Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, to work for victims of oppression <coughs> and persecution who are not reached by other major aid organizations for political or security reasons. And we work with close partners in DROS. I've been there every year for many, many years, but also some of the conflict areas like Bautri, which has suffered horrendously from Boko Haram, um, Kano, similarly, uh, Kaduna, and more recently, the areas affected by the Fulani, the militant uh, Islamized, unfortunately, herdsmen. And recently visited four villages uh, which had been destroyed by the Fulani. We stood in the ruins of the pastor's house where he himself had been murdered, in the ruins of a modern-day martyr, and there are many modern-day martyrs in northern and central belt Nigeria. And we've witnessed so many of the tragedies, and I'm afraid there are hundreds of them. If anyone would wish to know more about what's happening, they're recorded, I mean, the atrocities, the killings, the burnings, the burnings of people alive in their own homes. We've been in those villages. But move on to reconciliation. Um, HART, a little NGO, is trying to promote reconciliation in two areas. One is in Jos, and there's a wonderful program where Christian women reach out to Muslim women and uh, teach them various um, skills like tailoring, embroidery, bead-making. And that, of course, does a lot to promote the esteem and the dignity of the Muslim women. But also, I wish you could see the smiles on their faces. When we meet those lovely ladies, uh, the Christian and the Muslim ladies, I mean, they really hug us. They are so moved by the reaching out and say their smiles are radiant. So reconciliation, I think, is very, very much appreciated where it can be accomplished. And one of the reasons why Canon Hassan John is our partner who does the reconciliation program in Dross is obviously to reconcile, but also to try to prevent the um, radicalization of the youth. There are programs of boys reaching out to boys, girls reaching out to girls, and of course the radicalizing influence of Boko Haram and Nani. Uh, are very powerful. So it's an attempt, as you said, to introduce genuine peace. The other program, very briefly, which we support, is a school in Ningi State in Bauchi, where horrendous uh, atrocities have occurred. And that's a school which we support for both Muslims and Christians. And uh, there are Muslim and Christian governors, Muslim and Christian teachers and pupils. And that is really helping the young people really to um, love each other and to override the inherent conflicts and tensions that history has brought them. So just very, very briefly, I'd just like to highlight two things for prayer. One is it's really important to tell the world what's happening. Um, the world doesn't know. The BBC will not cover Nigeria. You never hear about it on the, on the BBC, and I've been told by someone who works in the BBC they will not cover Nigeria. Why? But it's very important, therefore, that we tell the churches 
we tell people what's happening in your country, both for prayer and practical support. And the other very quick point uh, that I'd like to make is um, our government, I'm afraid to say, trivialises the situation. I mean, I've raised this again and again in the House of Lords. The government calls, for example, over 6,000 Christians were killed last year by the Fulani. It's still going on now. And the government calls it tit for tat between Christian farmers and Fulani, of Christian farmers and the Fulani herdsmen. Well, I'm sorry, 6,000 Christians is not tit for tat. So if we really want the truth, and only the truth will make us free, it's really important we do learn more, we speak about it, we publicise it, both for the churches to pray and to support, and for government to take seriously the real tragedies. I think uh, one of your former leaders actually called it genocide, and one of the former army leaders. So it is a dire situation you presented it. I just wanted to highlight everything you've said, but just to say what we're trying to do in heart to promote reconciliation. But these are drops in the ocean, and there needs to be much, much more. But congratulations, sir, and our thoughts and prayers are with your people as you hold your front line of faith and freedom. Thank you. Thank you. despite me trying to discourage my son because I didn't think he'd be able to raise 50,000. Um, he, he did raise the 50,000 in six months. The hospital was built. We went back there in January. Uh, the hospital was opened. And, uh, and not only that, the day, actually the day after the hospital was opened, the Fulani came and killed three more of the villagers. But the villagers have said that they can use that, the Fulani can use the hospital um, for their healthcare needs if they need to, which is another great um, way of, uh, of, of reaching out to those that we wouldn't normally reach out to in forms of peace and reconciliation. I think that's the case, right, you know, sir? Thank you. Thank you for adding that. Any other comments? How can we help or how do we get involved? 
Okay. The question is, how can we get involved? I will allow Kataza to answer that question. Let's take a look Dave is probably the best person because he is um, oh, yes. okay. yes. supporters. Go for it. Yeah, so part of our work at CW is to mobilise <coughs> folks, obviously the church being a huge part of that, to speak up and so in the ways that you know you can use your voice to petition to join Nels in as Baroness Cox said to you know, lobby your MP. Um, Delighted to kind of speak to it all individually afterwards, but you know it's so essential, particularly on this issue of you know, the Fulani, to to really uh, to keep going on it. You know we've been going at it now for several years, uh, uh, particularly with the UK government, and I think Charles would agree. And seeing some kind of changing of, of, of minds, but it's a case of keep going with, with you know with the, the facts that CSW Nigeria can provide us with. I think I think too that um, you know if you if you're interested in supporting Yunusa in his work of reconciliation, um, then you should see Yunusa uh, or or any of us afterwards that we can we can help you. you know, if there are ways that you want to get involved in that, like supporting it financially or prayer, then please do speak to us afterwards. Can I be very cheeky and add to that, please? I'm a great supporter of CSW. I think I may have the privilege of being a patron or something, but uh, I am a great supporter of CSW. But could I also just add our own work in Heart Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, because it very much parallels what CSW does, but slightly different angle on the work on the aid and advocacy. And if you want to do a double whammy, you could do it with CSW and Heart. If anyone's interested, and I could also let you have copies of reports of our visits, which really do stir your heart and mind and uh, and generates the pain, gives you the passion, the passion gives you the energy to do something. So everyone's at all interested in the parallel work that we do, not distracting from CSW, but supporting it, I'd be very happy to work with you. Thank you. Thank you. Comments or questions? Yes, I'm just interested in the time timeline uh, between you arriving at that church, um, Kidden Estate, and what you implemented and then the impact you saw in the Muslim community. I imagine it was a long time, um, and I think one of the things we I learned from that is just patience. As, as a pastor of a church in London, I think often I can get quite impatient and quite, you know, we want to see immediate results, and so maybe doing something that requires a long-term view, uh, we, don't, we don't look into those avenues because they don't produce bombs and seats in church on a Sunday. Um, and I'm just wondering how, what can we learn from you guys in terms of what we do in the UK? We look, in communities where there's knife crime, we live in communities where people are being radicalised, um, and so how can we, yeah, how can we learn kind of from your, yeah, in terms of patience and just playing the long-term game and seeing reconciliation of maybe over many years rather than um, immediately people coming to church the next Sunday after after we run something. Um, so just anything you can share from your experience of just waiting and and, and being patient. When you do things like the story I just gave to you, you will have to have a driving force. What's driving you to do what you are doing? And I think the general driving force is the fact that, first of all, it's a ministry. And because it's a ministry, it's a command from God. And because we are his children, we have no choice but to obey his command. When he said, 
He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel uh, and make disciples of all nations. He, he didn't say it must always be the pulpit and the pew uh, situation. Uh, we, we have to have many ways in order to, to bring the gospel to, to the people. Now, as a former Muslim, I do know that a typical Muslim will have to hear the gospel 25 times before he begins to understand what you are talking about. Let me say that again. The research has shown that a typical Muslim will have to hear repeatedly the gospel of salvation 25 times before he begins to comprehend what you are saying. Not even to give his life to Christ yet because that's left in the hands of God. So you must understand that it's, it's ministry and your part is to do what you are doing to tell the gospel of Christ in whatever way it's uh, fitting to the situation and leaving the result to God. The result could be like this. The result could be later on. Uh, I mean, it's all in the hands of God. So I think that will help your patient to know that it's not you that will bring about the result, it is God. And he will always bring the result at his own time. And I have also believed and I've seen that your enemies can resist anything but not love. I've seen that severally replicated, that your enemies cannot resist genuine love from you. So, since I do know that, and I have that at the back of my mind, it keeps me going. No matter how long the result takes, I know that someday you will bow to love. Yes, please. Uh, thank you for watching uh, this, um, this morning. It was really inspiring. Um, I can relate to it because I'm from Pakistan and obviously living in, in a Muslim community. I've seen a number of things like that happen to our own family. Uh, my uh, both sisters and their houses were burned by Muslims mm. in a village and they had to run and uh, fight for their lives. But also uh, working in Afghanistan, I worked in Afghanistan for uh, uh, Afghan refugees, uh, taking them aid and they're all Muslims. And one of the questions they used to ask me, because I was the only Christian there, you know, why do you do it? Mm. And it's a very interesting question because that gets the conversations going. And Muslim mindset is very different, you, you'd understand, because you, 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 you've come from that background. But uh, in terms of conflict, um, there is a lot of conflict where we live here as well. It's not as probably as apparent, but it's there. And our situation isn't as dire as, as in Sudan or Afghanistan or, or anywhere. But there's lots of lessons that we can learn from your stories and what you do and apply it probably differently in our own context here. And I'm just wondering uh, what can we know more from you and, and what you're doing and probably maybe translate that differently into our society because you know, we've got different societies, different communities. They don't like each other. There is lots of conflicts going on. Uh, certainly, maybe uh, on a larger scale in a, in a city like London. Well, not so much from where I come in Carlisle, because it's a, it's a very 
uh, uh, small <coughs> city, but it's still there. And I think lessons have to be learned, uh, and, and you know, love has to be promoted. And as you rightly say, you know, uh, nothing can conquer love. Love is the ultimate thing. So, you know, I would like to learn some, some more from you, as, as our brother said earlier on. Let's get some more knowledge, understanding, so we can help those who are in our context as well. So thank you for what you said this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Beginning from the fact, again, going back to what I said before, that it's a ministry. And it's a command from the Lord himself. And as his child, you want to obey the command. One thing I think that got us to where we are in Nigeria as a church is that there came a time where we became very nominal as a people of faith in our country. Because when you get used to your non-Christian neighbors, the extent that you do not share the gospel of salvation at the time that the doors are open, the doors will not always be open. Yeah? There will come a time that the door is going to be closed. And I think in most northern parts, northern states of Nigeria, the doors are closing up. Yeah? The doors are closing up. But there was a time that you could preach freely. And not many people took those opportunities to bring Christ in their business life, to bring Christ in their work life, to bring Christ to their schoolmates and classmates. We were just relating. I mean, things were good. You could go to your Muslim friend's house and eat, you go and sleep. The parents will accept you as one of their own. But I think there was a time that we forgot that the purpose for which God allows such opportunities so that we can be light and salt. Can I ask another question? If that's yes, okay. please. Um, obviously, Muslims take Jesus as a prophet and, and highly respected, not just from their book, but also from their understanding of who Jesus is. I'm interested in knowing how you take that step from helping them to understand that he's not just a prophet to telling them that he is God himself, you know, because that's the biggest challenge. Uh, that's that's what they don't um, understand. How, what do you do? It's an approach that you must learn. Witnessing to the Muslim is not the same as witnessing to a, a person who comes from a Christian family. It's very different because the concept of salvation does not exist in Islam. You understand what I'm saying? You growing up from a Christian family have heard so much about salvation, Jesus dying on the cross and so on. The concept of salvation is anchored on good works as far as Islam is concerned. So when a Muslim comes in contact with a Christian who says, now no, it's not your good works, but somebody died on the cross and resurrected, it's, it's, it's not very clear. He thinks that good works first. But Christianity says you are saved unto good works. So it's salvation first before good works. It's the salvation that transforms your life to do good works. But in Islam, it's the good works that gives you the leeway to go to heaven. So this is where the tension lies. And so you must 
be able to learn a few things uh, to be able to help you to witness to Muslims. But having said that, because it is God's work, God can use our ignorance to reach the Muslims. All he wants from us is willingness to do this work. Uh, there is no time to give you uh, more lectures on this. Again, coming from that background myself, I'm studying Islam in, in the seminar. That's a very brief question. I need time for that. It's quite a sensitive question, and I never know how to answer it. When you're up in the north or central world and people are suffering so horrendously, one gets very little on sight of help from other churches in western Nigeria. I mean, it's important to send this letter to the Church of Corinth, where one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer. But I don't see much help coming up from the church, not a very wealthy church, in other parts of Nigeria, to your brothers and sisters who are suffering. How do I explain that to people who ask me? That is because the, the issues that we deal with are very different. In the southern part of Nigeria, what they deal with is resource control. That's where the oil is. And almost everyone there is a Christian. Most people there are Christians. But in the northern part, what to deal with is uh, uh, religious freedom issues. And you will also agree with me from Bible history that the persecuted church is usually the strongest church. So the church in the north is stronger in faith but very poor in resources. Because we are competing with the Muslims. But in the South, uh, that's not the case. And in fact, you find in a family in the South, some are Muslims and some are Christians. So who are you going to kill? And the kind of Islam that is being practiced in most part of the South, except now that they are being infiltrated by the northern Muslims. It's, it's very moderate, uh, you know, Islam. So that the Muslims can go to church on Christmas Day and the Christians can go to mosque on Saladi just to celebrate together. Uh, but they don't have this uh, tension to the degree that we have it in the north. So that had made the church in the south not to understand what is happening in the north. Mm. And, and so it is more of prosperity and prosperity. But in the north, we don't have the leisure of prosperity. We have the leisure, we, we have to preach survival mm. uh, under repression, discrimination, and persecution. Perhaps that, that might uh, vaguely explain what is happening.